If you remember the context, uh, John uh, has been telling us for the last several chapters, really since chapter 11 and 12, about the, the great battle taking place between the, in the spiritual realm between a Christ and uh, the, the devil, the dragon, and the beasts who are his allies as they make war against the church. And we saw in chapter 19 and 20 that the devil is defeated and all his allies are, are, are defeated as well. And now in chapter 21, we come uh, to the end of uh, human history as Jesus returns and uh, we see the new heaven and the new earth as uh, uh, the place that Christ has prepared for his bride. Let's give our attention, chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's ask the Lord to bless. God, now we come before your word, and we trust that your spirit has been given to help us understand it. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us a vision here of your glory and, and the beauty of what is yet to come in a way that transforms us. Uh, we thank you, O oh Jesus, that you continue to speak to your church today through this word and by your spirit. And so we, with open ears now, wait to hear from you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the book of Revelation, as uh, you may have noticed, is not a usual book. There are, uh, it's a different genre, a difficult genre, apocalyptic literature. It's not something that we're used to. But uh, we'll find that when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, well, we, that it, um, uh, really the best way to understand it is through a genre that we're very familiar with, and that is the genre of romance stories. Uh, you won't really uh, understand Re Revelation 21 and 22 without the context of, of romance. Uh, when John sees the new heaven and earth and the, the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of, out of heaven, she is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in chapter, uh, in chapter 21, verse, um, well, chapter 22, actually, we're going to see, and 21, we're going to see 
We're going to see the description of the bride, particularly, yeah, 21 verses 9 and following. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so next week, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the bride. But, but Revelation is telling us that human history is going to conclude with a wedding day. As Jesus, the great bridegroom, uh, is brought face to face with his church, his bride, and they will join hands and literally live happily ever after. Uh, this is a romance story. I've, uh, someone once uh, summarized the whole book of Revelation to me this way, uh, kill the dragon, get the girl. <laughs> that's the story of Revelation. Uh, that's what Jesus does uh, here in the book. Now, anyone who's familiar with the genre of romance knows that romance stories have to contain four basic elements in order to ring true. First, the girl, uh, the girl needs to be beautiful and true. She needs to be worthy of a great love. Secondly, the man, the man needs to be heroic. He needs to be willing to risk his life in order to, uh, and able to conquer any obstacles in order to gain the treasure of his heart. He needs to be worthy of her love. And then third, there need to be obstacles. There, there, needs to, there have to be battles that have to be fought, oceans that need to be crossed, false suitors that have to be beaten away, uh, fierce enemies that need to be defeated. And finally, there needs to be a consummation. There needs to be a final dramatic scene where the lovers embrace and the story ends with the promise of a happily ever after. Uh, any romance that falls short of those basic elements will, will not move you, and they'll ring false. If the woman is not true, if she's faithless, the romance falls apart. If the man is a coward, if there are no obstacles to overcome, no matter what sort of consummation uh, is presented, it's going to ring false and deeply unsatisfying. And the reason for that is, you see, because we have an inherent sense of how the story is supposed to go. That the bride is to be beautiful, that the man is, is to be heroic and, and conquer. Uh, the, the bride is to be true and, and, and the, uh, the man worthy then as he gains her love, and wins her love, and the final consummation, then you see, um, that we're looking for ultimately is exactly what we read here in the book of Revelation, the, 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 uh, the scene of Christ given to his holy bride, whom he has made worthy and made pure, made true by his own power, and yet she is robed in the glory and brought to him as the great, um, the suitor, the lover, the conqueror. And so the book of Revelation really is a story about that love. It's about the seven letters. If you remember, the book of Revelation begins with the letters to the churches. Those are love letters. Letters written by Christ to his bride where he uh, warns her of dangers and, and encourages her to be engaged in making herself ready for the wedding day. The book then moves on to describe the obstacles, the great enemies of the church, the, the, the red dragon, who's the devil, the beast from the sea and the earth, who seek uh, to devour and destroy the bride through temptation, through oppression, persecution. Um, and uh, these are then the, the enemies that King Jesus takes on and fights against with the word of his mouth and conquers. And now we come then to the final scene, the consummation. 
Dennis Johnson, in his commentary, writes, the consummation of this romance is what Revelation has been about from the start. The blood and fire, falling stars and trembling earth, the dragon, the monsters, the whole terrifying conflict has been about the divine husband's jealous love for his bride, a love so jealous that he will fight all comers in order to have her to himself, a love so sacrificial that he lays down his life to rescue her from every threat and enemy. It's a beautiful story. It's the greatest love story ever told. And we are a part of it. We are the bride, the church. Now as we come to chapter 21, the battle has been fought and the stage of human history has been cleared of all evil. Uh, Every enemy has been destroyed. All that remains now on the stage of human history is Jesus Christ and his bride. In ancient times, and when this book would have been written at the late first century uh, A.D., uh, the, the practice was for couples to be betrothed. Uh, betrothal is, is uh, it's like an engagement, but much more. Uh, to be betrothed is to be promised to someone and have promised yourself to them so that, that the vows, in a sense, have already been taken, uh, but the couple does not yet live together. And the reason is there's not a place for them. And so during the time of betrothal, that time is specifically so that the groom can go and prepare a place For the bride, a place where they can live together for the rest of their life. Well, that is exactly uh, what Jesus told his disciples on the night that he was going to be put to death. He says, "Um, I'm going away, but I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And, we're, and I will come back for you, right? That's, that's the promise of every groom. I'm going to go away. I'm going to prepare a place, but I will come back for you so that you may be with me where I am. That's what Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross. Father, I desire that they be, uh, th- those that you've given to me might be with me where I am to, to see my glory. And so Jesus speaks there as the groom he's, who's gone to prepare a place. And now in the uh, very end of Revelation, Jesus shows his bride, shows us the place. He's showing us what it's like, what it looks like, this place that he has prepared uh, for us where we will live with him forever. And so let's begin then first noticing the place. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's been a great deal of discussion about uh, the exact nature of this new heaven and new earth. Uh, is it going to look like this world just without sin, so this world cleaned up? Or is it going to be something completely different, an entire new universe, new planets, uh, a new earth? Well, I think uh, the, the answer is both. It's, it's both going to be radically different, and yet there's going to be continuity, uh, when Peter speaks about uh, what's going to happen when Christ returns in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. John here says the first heaven and the, heaven and the first earth passed away. 
but I do not believe that means that it disappears. Peter doesn't say it disappears. He says the earth will be exposed, uh, laid bare before the judgment of God, and, and God will judge in all righteousness. But the first heaven and the first earth passing away, I think, are telling us that uh, there is a second to come, and there's both continuity and discontinuity. I think the greatest um, analogy will be our own resurrected bodies. So when we die, our body returns to dust from which it was made, but there will be a resurrection of our body, and it, but it will be a glorified body. It will be both, um, there will be continuity and discontinuity. Uh, you think about Christ's resurrected body, his glorified body. Uh, it was his body. Uh, the scars were there. You could see the scars. But it was Christ's body in a glorified state. And in that glorified state, Christ's real body had characteristics that were not like our body. Now, there were things that were, he could eat, he could talk, he could be touched. Very physical, very real, and yet he could pass through, uh, through walls, right? He could enter a room without opening the door. That's not magic. That's, that is a real body in a different state that has access to capacities and, and abilities that we simply don't yet know or understand. But I do believe that's an analogy, a picture of what's going to happen with the new heaven and the new earth. It, it will be I, this earth. Uh, this earth that God has created, this earth that Paul says is groaning, longing to enter into the redemption of the sons of God. And so um, the fields and the rocks and the trees and the lakes and the mountains of the new heaven and the new earth will be the mountains and trees and rocks that you know and love. But all gloriously transformed with properties that we can't really imagine, which is why the Bible says very, very little uh, about what heaven, the new heaven and earth, will be like. We're, we're just not told uh, all the mysteries. We're, we're, we're told very little about what it will be like. And, and, and the reason is it, it's, it's beyond what we're able to comprehend. We don't have the categories for it. Imagine trying to explain to a person who's blind, who's been blind all of their life, who's never seen light, who's never experienced color, try to tell that person what it looks like in Michigan at peak season in the fall, right? When, imagine standing by a lake and the, the whole far side of the lake is just exploding with color and maybe there's a mist coming off the lake so the light is somewhat diffused and you want to try to explain that to someone who's never seen I mean, it already is difficult to describe because it's so beautiful. But when you're trying to explain to someone who's never seen, where do you, where do you start? And so, the, you see, the Bible doesn't, it doesn't go into that. The glories are beyond our capacity to grasp. However, <laughs> Jesus does tell us the essential things. So he tells us uh, what won't be there, first of all. What won't be there is sin. So the, the, the key difference that, that Christ points out here is the moral difference between this world and the world to come. And so that's the focus when the text says, the sea was no more. For those of you who love the sea, who maybe have despaired uh, of a heaven that's just terra firma, um, I don't think, I don't think the, the point is that there's not going to be 
All right, uh, shoreline. I don't think that's the point at all. There's going to be beautiful shoreline. The point is that, that in the ancient world, the sea is, is um, seen as the place of chaos, the place of death. Devastating storms come in off the sea. Tsunamis come in off the sea. Uh, invading armies come in from the sea. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the beast comes from the sea. It is a place of chaos. It's a place that threatens those who dwell on earth with evil, with harm, with death. And, and Jesus is telling us there will be none of that in the new heaven and the new earth. All that is evil, all that uh, threatens, all that harms is forever removed from God's new creation. Uh, this was promised, it's, it, we find this, uh, echoes of this throughout the scripture, a, a prominent place is Isaiah, prophesying 700 years before Christ was born. Chapter 65, uh, God says this through the mouth of the prophet, verse 17, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? Every vestige of the fall will be gone. Every trace, every remnant of sin will be removed. And since we can't comprehend, you see, what, what heaven will be like or the new earth will be like in a positive sense... Um, Jesus tells us what it will be like in a negative sense. Instead of telling us what will be there, he tells us what won't be there. Death won't be there. No, neither shall there be mourning there, nor crying, nor pain anymore. None of those things shall be there. And those are, those are concepts that we can get our mind around. No more miscarriages. No more stillborn children. No more children born with disabilities or diseases. No more accidents or illnesses that steal away loved ones before their time. No more wars, no more wheelchairs, no more walkers, no more orphanages, no more nursing homes, no more broken hearts, no more broken promises, no more broken bodies. No more lying, no more corruption, no more sexual perversion. No more grieving our sin. No more grieving the sins others commit against us. Every single thing that causes pain in your life, Jesus promises, will be gone. In fact, it already belongs in Christ to the category of former things. Jesus says the former things, right, have passed away. And so every trial, every pain, every fear, every heartache, every tear belongs to the category of former things, things that are passing away and very soon will be forever gone. Now, why does Jesus tell us that? Because he wants us to see it, to believe it, to hunger and thirst for it. But notice, while Jesus tells us primarily what won't be there, he does tell us one thing that will be there. There's one thing he points that will be there, and that is God himself, God will be in the new heaven and earth. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them 
as their God. The essence of heaven is not the absence of things that hurt. The essence of heaven is the presence of God in all of his glory, in all of his beauty, in all the splendor of his holiness, in all his righteousness, in all of his might, in all of his faithfulness, in all of his attributes. The presence of God is the essence of heaven. And the experience of heaven, the core beauty of the experience of heaven will be to be with God and have God with you. He's with us now by his spirit, but this is going to be something new, something vastly more, better, Paul will say, to depart and be with Christ. In the new, in the new heaven and the new earth, uh, this with language just comes, it's, it's saturated in the text here, or the text is saturated with it. So God, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, again, that is, that is the essential promise of the new covenant. It's the essential treasure of the new heaven and earth. So when you think about a man and a, and a woman who've decided to get married, um, what they promise, the vow, is, is, is specifically a vow to dwell together. I take you as my husband. I take you as my wife to live with you according to God's appointment. I, uh, to, to love you and to cherish you, to honor you. Uh, that we, we give ourselves to one another and we promise to do that as we dwell together for the rest of our life. Well, that is just, a, again, a small picture of the wedding vow that Jesus makes. The, 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 the promise that God makes in his covenant is I will be a God to you and I will be with you. And you will be with me. And we will dwell together forever in a new heaven and earth. And you see, if if you're getting married and if you love your spouse, the treasure of the covenant is exactly the intimacy and the communion. That's what you hunger for. The place, in some sense, is secondary, correct? I mean, where you live doesn't matter that much. I've never seen someone whose whose marriage was radically altered because they lived in the wrong house. But the communion that takes place is what makes that house a home. Well, heaven is going to be glorious. But, the, but, but what will make heaven heaven is the communion. As God dwells with us and we with him in, in unique, intimate fellowship and communion with God forever. I, I mean, words just fail here. How do you describe this? What it will be like to, to dwell with God and God himself to dwell with you. To be in the very presence of God. To see Jesus face to face. If you took every beautiful thing that you've ever experienced. If, if you take the most stirring music you've ever heard. The most magnificent views you've ever seen. The most intimate moments you've ever known. The most treasured memories. You take all of those things, a whole life of them. And you wrap them all together and make them one. That that the joy of that reality you see would would just be the smallest faintest whispering of the joy of dwelling with God and God dwelling with you it's it's just the tiniest taste of it 
And if you love the Lord, this is, this is what you're hungry for. This is what you thirst for. And this will be then the satisfaction of your soul hunger. If you've been awakened by the Spirit to the reality that there is a God that, and you've been made for Him and you hunger for, to know Him, then this is the most precious promise in the universe. If you're dead to God, it really doesn't make much difference to you. It's just words, just sounds. But if this is true, if this is actually what God promises, and you have a, you have a hunger for Him, a desire to know Him, to be with God and He with you, then this is, this is, this is heaven. God promises for his people, that they will see him. Again, what that looks like, God the Father is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. But we will see the splendor of holiness. And we will join him in the splendor. We won't just be observers. We participate. You, you will experience with unbroken, unsullied, unending bliss the reality of God's love for you in the person of Christ and the ministry of the Spirit in the presence of the Father. And the intimacy of that fellowship, the intimacy of that love is reflected in this tender kindness where the, the, the Scripture says, He, God Himself, He, will wipe away every tear from your eye. That's what mothers do. That's what lovers do. It's extremely intimate. God himself promises to do this for you, his bride. You see, John doesn't want us just to see a place. He wants us to see a person. He wants us to see the beauty and the glory of God. And so the middle of the text, verse 5 and 6, we were shown Jesus. Behold, he who was seated on the throne said, he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. At the middle of the text, we find the, what is central to all that is and all that is to come. Uh, the one who is seated on the throne. Who is that? Who's seated on the throne? Jesus is seated on the throne. The victor, the conqueror, the lover of the bride is on the throne. And this Jesus speaks to you, speaks to the church. He, he wants you to know this. Behold, pay attention. I am making all things new. Everything is being made new. Everything that has suffered and groaned under the weight of the fall, under the weight of sin, is going to be transformed by the glory of the presence of Jesus Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. As I said before, this is what creation is longing for. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 8. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. But one day the pain will be done and the birth will take place, a new heaven and earth. And Jesus, friends, wants us to embrace this redemptive fact that everything that is not righteously judged and thrown into the, into the lake of fire will be radically transformed, made gloriously new, and Jesus himself will do it. I am making all things new. And he wants us to be convinced of it. <coughs> Jesus, uh, notice, he commands John, write this down. 
Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Things that are written by God are things that stand, things that cannot be revoked, things that must be and shall be fulfilled simply because God has said it. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And Jesus then he wants this written so you can read it and I can read it. And we can know this is written by God and know to the marrow of our bones that he is making everything new. So that the horizons of our life are not determined by the things that we currently see, but by the things that he declares, the things that are yet to come, the things that he promises to do for us and be for us in a new heaven and new earth. He wants us to see the, the vastness of our, of our existence and, our, and to see our present circumstances in that beautiful, vast reality of his love for us and what he's promised to us and what is absolutely going to be because he's declared it. And so Jesus speaks in the present tense. It is done. It is done. I am the Alpha. And the omega, the beginning and the end. Present tense, it is done. So certain is it that he can speak in the present tense. And again, linked directly to the reality of Christ, the alpha and the omega. It's how he introduced himself in the first part of the book. He's the beginning of everything and the ending of everything. And this is not just a title that Jesus takes. This is the definition of reality. This is how things just simply are. God is the beginning, the fountain of everything that exists. He is what holds it all together. So he's not the beginning just chronologically, but metaphysically. Everything exists by his power, and it all exists for his purpose. He's the omega, the end, the telos of all created things. Everything exists for his purposes and for his glory. So Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, For from him, Alpha, and through him and to him, Omega, are all things to him be glory forever and ever. This is, cre- this is, this is reality. This is not a Christ, just a Christian doctrine. It's cosmic truth. And that means, you see, that Since Jesus is the Alpha, the source of all things, and the Omega, the ending of all things, that means he is the Alpha and the Omega of all people. Every person owes their existence to Jesus. And no matter how far you try to run away from this Christ in the world that he's created and the days that he has ordained for you, when you get to the end of your life, if you've spent your life running from him and you die, guess what you find? Jesus, the Omega, everyone will. The issue is, the question then is, how will you find him there? Will he be a fountain of life, a spring of water, or will he be a lake of fire? And that's how the text ends, with promises and portions. In these final verses, there are beautiful promises and, and portions Uh, that are shown to us, Uh, the portions being what belongs to you in eternity, and and they're symbolized by two bodies of water, uh, the spring of the water of life and the lake of fire. 
In verse 8, we're told specifically that those, um, uh, the portion uh, of some will be a lake of fire. The cowardly, the faithless. Uh, some commentators think that, that John is speaking here of, of people who had professed to be Christians, had loosely attached themselves to the church of Christ, but in the day of persecution had decided it wasn't worth it and walked away. The faithless. And then there are others, the, the detestable, most likely referring to the, the uh, perverse sexual practices of the pagans of that day, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns forever, the second death, the experience of God's just wrath forever. That is their portion. That's their inheritance. It's, it's what they receive from God for the life that they lived on earth. In direct contrast to that portion, there is the spring of the water of life. We're going to see more of that in chapter 22, where it begins, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And Jesus gives two promises here, an, an invitation really and a call, but wonderful promises in both. He says, first, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. What is the water, the spring of the water of life? Well, the Bible again talks about this. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 4, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of, of God. And, and that, that uh, river we're going to see in chapter 22 flows from the throne of God. It's for the healing of the nations. It's all the love and kindness and goodness and grace of God for sinners in Jesus Christ. And it flows and it's abundant and it's life. And it, it, it turns on head some cultural assumptions about heaven and hell because our culture assumes that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. And that's not what Jesus tells us here. He says thirsty people go to heaven. People who thirsted, we're going to see more of this tonight as we look at the, the, the third beatitude, fourth beatitude. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. How do you get heaven you thirst for it. You desire God, who is heaven. And you, 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 you sense this, this desire in your soul, created by the Holy Spirit, that you want to commune with God. You want to be made right with God. You want, you, you want to have fellowship, communion with God, and, and your sins are a barrier. And so you come in Jesus Christ, believing the promise of the, of the gospel that everyone who comes in the name of Jesus Christ is forgiven and is saved. And so you have a thirst for God, and then you ask, God, in Jesus Christ, that he would forgive your sins and make you right and restore the fellowship and, and the text promises that that will happen for you without payment, free of charge. It's, it's, it's the most wonderful promise, such a glorious invitation, free of charge. If you're here this morning and you do not know that you are right with God, you're not sure that you have communion with God in Jesus Christ, well, there's no reason for you to be unsure ask to the thirsty I will give the one who, whose word cannot be forsaken I will give from the spring of the water of life free of charge you will receive all the love and the grace of God in Jesus Christ if you ask but there's a call then also for those who have asked 
and those who have communion. And that's a call to endure. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see, friends, Jesus, the lover of your soul, the lover of the bride, is promising us everlasting life in his presence by the free gift of his grace, but he's calling us then as his bride to wait for him, to be faithful, to not give ourselves to false gods, to not run after other lovers, to allow ourselves to be washed pure with with the word, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And to join them in the, in the mission of Christ and to, and to experience the conquest of Christ as we wage war with our own flesh and the world and the, and the devil and cling to him in faith. You see, Jesus wants his bride to know there is a battle yet to fight and foes to face and there's an inheritance to gain all in him. We are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. That's the romance. Through him who loved us. And so friends, on this very normal Sunday in the year of our Lord 2019, what should those promises do for us? Uh, They should comfort us and encourage us if we are the bride of Jesus Christ. As real as this day is, that's how real this new heaven and earth are. And it's coming soon. Jesus promises it. And so no matter what you're facing today, and some of you are facing very hard things, Jesus wants to encourage and comfort you that he has his hand on your life and that he is working in your life through the circumstances that you face to bring you to this place, to this day, to have this portion as your own. And if you are not in Christ, then there's a marvelous invitation here for you. In fact, the Bible ends with that invitation. Come, the Spirit and the Bride say, chapter 22, 17. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desire take the water of life without price. If you've never done that before, I plead with you to do it today. Jesus Christ is coming again. May he be found as a portion of water, of life, a spring of joy, the treasure that we were created for. May God grant it. Amen. Our Father in heaven, this, uh, Lord, we come to truths this morning that are beyond our ability to grasp. And apart from your Holy Spirit, Lord, we'll just stay dead to them. But I pray, God, that the reality of a new heaven and new earth, the home of righteousness, where you will dwell with your people and we with, with you as our God, I pray, Lord, that that would bring life and health and peace into our heart today. I pray that it would, Lord, move us to to fight this fight of faith, to hold on to Jesus Christ, to fix our eyes on what is yet to come, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, that we become more and more people who are gripped by the promise of our lover, our king, that he is coming again, and that we are committed then to waiting for him, to long for his appearing, because we love him. And our hearts desires to spend eternity with him, the one who loved us and gave himself for us to rescue us from this present evil age and to make us his people, his bride. Oh God, thank you that we, will, uh, we get to spend eternity praising you 
and rejoicing in your goodness, celebrating your victory and our incredible inheritance as the bride of Christ. Comfort us today with those truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to the word this morning, singing that hymn, There is a higher throne than all this world. That is our home. Let's delight in it together as we sing.